Welcome to today's episode of the Ideonomics podcast, where we talk about inclusion, diversity, equity, accessibility, and anti-racism in the Canadian public service. I'm your co-host, Neha Shizad Chandarajan, joining you from Ottawa, which is the land of the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples. And I'm Sean Karmali, joining you from Toronto, which is traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. Today, we're joined by Holly Ellingwood. Hi, Holly. Hi, Holly. Hi, pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you here with us. Um, Holly, could you just give us um, a quick introduction into um, just your pronouns, your background, where you are in public service right now? Sure. I, I always wish that was a shorter answer than it is. <laughs> but hi, my name's uh, Dr. Holly Ellingwood. The doctor part is for a doctorate in psychology. My pronouns are he, him, mes pronouns sont il, lui. And gosh, um, a little bit of an intersectional person without a poster, uh, so to speak, just because I'm a bit of a mix of a lot of things. And I mm-hmm. suppose I should own that since what we're talking about today will be some things to do with some of that intersectionality. So just to be open and transparent and upfront. So I'm a person with a disability happened when I was 21 uh, during my second year of university. Mm-hmm. I am somebody with a visible, tangible disability, meaning that people can tell uh, by looking at me. Mm-hmm. I've been out since I was roughly 17 as a member of the 2SLBQQIA plus community. I use that term because of the recommendations in the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Mm-hmm. as well as the missing, murdered, indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, mm-hmm. right? My family's background is something that's a bit mixed. My family's a mix of white, Celt specifically, mm-hmm. uh, Irish, Scottish, Welsh. My grandfather was a Welsh sailmaker uh, when he moved here, uh, originally to Newfoundland and then to New Brunswick. So my family lives in the Maritimes. Uh, but on my grandmother's side, there's also white enigma and amongst some of my Elsa Bakdak nation specifically. Uh, so Gwe, just in case there's anybody Mi'kmaq who's listening. As, and for my family, there's also some members who are also black, mm-hmm. white and Mi'kmaq or black and Mi'kmaq, mm-hmm. uh, depending. So a little bit of diversity there. Uh, I should also mention this, although I'm sure it would make my mother went to hear it. So I'm hoping she doesn't. I grew up under the poverty line. Mm-hmm. for a large portion of my life and then for a large portion of my adulthood due to being a person with a disability mm-hmm. right so that made it a very very long road to get work eventually but we'll save that for the next question maybe <laughs> um so I think you were asking like how did I my current role in the public service mm-hmm. that's right all right well my substantive is over at public safety Canada as the lead departmental strategist for diversity and inclusion secretariat there Mm-hmm. And I was doing that for the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, however, my second week in a current secondment over with Natural Resources Canada, where I'm playing the part of a lead policy strategist to give support to Trudy Samuel and her really great team at the Office of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion over there. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for telling us about your rich background. And now uh, it seems like you're just following uh, a little bit of your your heart's work so I'm glad we have you here at Enercan now <laughs> and with Trudy who um, like I said she did our first podcast with us so that's so great that we have you as well 
how about I ask you then to elaborate a little bit on your and on your background and your journeys? I'm going to give a little content warning right away for everybody, as for some people, this may be something that they find upsetting or aligns with some experience that they may have, particularly if you're a person who has different ability needs due to having different health parameters. I really dislike the term disability. It's so minoritizing, it really drives me up a wall, but mm -hmm. I have not yet figured out a word that would work better. Mm -hmm. So you may see, hear me like jumping around from different terms. Yeah, and sure. depending. Um, do you hear do you hear differently abled i've heard that one being used um or do you not like that one it's okay it's a bit of a mouthful mm -hmm. in a way but also i mean one universalizing aspect of it is that we're all yeah differently abled right That's i mean we all have different capacities and abilities and stuff mm -hmm. um the other aside, it doesn't still signify the different marginalization that person experiences, but do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's this odd thing where you don't want to, you know, be somebody who's, it's like the term visible minority. I find both of those terms really vexing and frustrating because I understand, but again, literally minoritizing language, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I even the so. term diversity is based off the word divergent, which is also problematic. Like even our language is systemically flawed to the point where it's really hard to come up with a yeah. word that is respectful, dignified, and actually still captures what it is we experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know I find that as well. I recently actually just went to a workshop where um, the host said she used racialized now instead of visible minority because it has that impression that it's a societal construct like race and all of that it's a societal construct that's placed on uh, a racialized person um, and so i found that one to be a bit more apt than visible minority i think in the policy world we still do use visible minority and kind of shifting to racialized well it depends right because if you want to be accurate when talking about employment equity the ee act right, has that specific category. I know they're currently going through a review. I'm sure we're all yeah. in the Anti-Racism Ambassadors Network are very well aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, and it'll be really interesting to see what they evolve to and update it to. That's right. But as soon as you use any race construct, it's exactly that. It's a yeah. racist construct, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's disability is a very ableistic construct. It's a very marginalizing construct, right? So how do we evolve beyond that? And and I tend to use, you mentioned the word racialization. That's one of the things I tend to use as well, just because it more closely, I think, captures what's being done versus what we are. Because I'd love to walk in a room and just be Holly. That would be beautiful and amazing. Yeah. Right? To just be Holly and said, here's all these things that are really terrible yeah. that I experience by giving a bunch of labels that I've never consented or acquiesced to. Nobody consulted me mm -hmm. about those terms, right? Mm -hmm. uh, just like they haven't for anybody else. Yeah. That's right. right. Being somebody who's AFAB. Mm -hmm. You know, like nobody consulted me. Granted, as a newborn, I wouldn't have had any say, really. Yeah. But at the same time, it'd be nice sometimes if things were left like tabula rasa. Yeah. So that we could then, you know, let people simply be instead mm -hmm. of putting them on all the boxes that creates the intersectionality and systemic things that we experience, which then leads me to how I get into the public service. So <laughs> before being somebody with a disability on situational handicap, 
I was somebody who worked frontline work. I did work in Children's Aid Society, uh, frontline work in areas of drop-in centers, residential treatment centers, a lot of them which no longer exist because they've since closed down due to either funding issues or now more recently pandemic issues, right? That forced a lot of different closures, but did a lot, a lot of frontline work of that nature that had a lot of high risk. There was a lot of dangers to it, unfortunately. Um, but my sister who did purchasing the books uh, for a bookstore. So she was a book purchaser or purchaser in general, because uh, I'm sure there's other things besides books that you have to purchase for the store, was getting better pay and had benefits. I had next to none of those things. <laughs> so back then, being somebody who is half a century in the making, as I like to say, <laughs> I decided you actually had your pay was based off of your education. So if you had a college degree, which I did in corrections, I went back to school to get a bachelor's so that I could get better pay. It was during the second year of the bachelor's that my health changed. And then I couldn't get work anywhere for years and years because I was forced as someone who could no longer travel. Travel resulted in severe seizures, any kind of independent motion from the body, such as an escalator, a rocking chair, or a car. Mm would trigger severe ongoing seizures. So all of a sudden I was somebody who is very much housebound. So think of pandemic life during a lockdown mm -hmm. where it's not simply that you can't go anywhere because it's all closed, but you can't go anywhere because, you can't because go. right? Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a really hard argument, which I know may seem almost preposterous now that we're all in virtual mode because of a global pandemic. But in it took pretty much close to 20 years to get my first paid job. Mm. So that was 20 years where I was on disability, right? Which isn't enough to properly live on. It doesn't cover all the costs. It doesn't even barely cover rent unless you can get into like certain affordable housing, which there's a long lineup, right? Uh, so I was lucky I lived with family who was very kind and, and helping me to make a more affordable living and even volunteer work. It wasn't something that people would support. Uh, so I was losing hope. Mm -hmm. I took me 18 years to get my bachelor's because of accommodation fights, being in and out of the hospital, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And somebody at the university within the first two years of me realizing I had a permanent health condition and this is for life, it's not just for several months or a year or two. Well, I was doing that transition. The person at the university who was involved in administration said, well, what's the point hauling you completing your bachelor's? You'll never be able to do anything with it anyways. Oh, so why bother us with this? So me being me, I was like, well, <laughs> you know, whether I can do anything with it or not, it doesn't matter. I have a right to an education because I have the privilege of being born in Canada. Mm -hmm. So I'll be finishing this and what I do with it or not really isn't your concern. Point is I have a right to it. So it took a lot and every single course I had to negotiate, fight to get accommodations, to get access, mm -hmm. right? Accessibility as we've seen during the global pandemic is a universal need. It's not relegated simply to different health parameters. Mm -hmm. We need access to all sorts of things. We need access to health services. We need access to job opportunities. We need access to being considered viable as somebody employable, viable as a partner, as a potential parent, as a potential friend. 
all of a sudden I learned very quickly that as a person with a disability, I was seen as not viable in any of those categories. Mm -hmm. And that was so dehumanizing. It wrecked me. It still does to this day, right? I'm actually single now. I'll go into the personal stuff. I, I don't mind because of the fact that I will not date anyone who does not treat me as somebody that they consider as worth, as worthy, but mm -hmm. as worth as much as them. People who date people with disabilities feel often they, they give a certain thing as if they're trading down, as if they're settling, as if they're making a sacrifice. Yeah. This isn't a sacrifice. I'm a Rolls Royce. I just require more commitment, more investment. I'm a luxury model. You can't just, you know, go to whatever shop, buy me, and it's done. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you are. Right? So... You know, it's how we perceive things. And that's the biggest hurdle. It, the, yes, ramps, absolutely important for me. Mm -hmm. But it's the attitudinal barriers. I would be in job interview after job interview after job interview, not just as an FSF student, but as both a master's student and a PhD student trying to get a co-op mm -hmm. where I work for them for free. Yeah. And people would not. The university also wasn't really keen on... They didn't, I, and I think part of it, to be fair, they didn't know how to leverage that. They didn't know how to fight, how to advocate mm -hmm. for one of their students who need that. Mm -hmm. They weren't motivated to do it very much. A couple of calls, that was it. You, get, you need to do more. You yeah. have to really be committed and dedicated to, no, let's figure this out because this isn't okay. Mm -hmm. So what happened is I finished my bachelor's, still couldn't get a job even anything so I applied to the master's program which by the way much more flexible for my different needs health wise and got enough of because I had good grades enough of a scholarship etc that paid more than any part-time job I applied for mm -hmm. two years passed I finished on time no problem why because again was given more accessibly so 18 years bachelor's two years on time was the only person in my program under that particular lab who graduated on time right Mm -hmm. Again, couldn't get jobs, applied to a PhD. Mm -hmm. And it was being in the PhD where all of a sudden somebody took me. It was Justice Canada, bless them, the Research and Statistics Division, took me on as a co-op student. So, well, you have a doctorate. Gosh, we're lucky to have you. Please do come. And I'm like, wow, okay. So I see how the doctorate's really important because it overcomes the attitudinal barrier of, oh, a person with a disability. Mm -hmm. Well, now I'm not just a person with a disability. I'm a person with a doctorate. The fact that I had to have a doctorate just to be able to work for free for somebody else is not lost on me. Yeah. Right. But still the F-swept after F-swept interviews and trying to get work were astounding because I did have special, I took every stats course there was mm -hmm. not because I wanted to, my family can attest to how much it harmed me. <laughs> There's bodies, literally the stats courses, every single term, right. Mm -hmm. Along the hallways, because they're not made to be kind. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. like, you know, they're like boot camps. Yeah. But I knew that specialization was important because I need to narrow down that field as much as possible for people to say yes to me instead of the no. Also being stats, I also recognize that you have to embrace those rejections because probability wise, right? Every no, it means me I'm that much closer to a yes. Simply yeah. through the law of mathematic probabilities, if nothing else. It doesn't mean that it'll be five no's. It'll probably mean that it could be a hundred or even a thousand. But every no brings me that much closer to the yes, right? And so I went through that and people would be super excited because they hear about my specializations, the fact that I had frontline work, the fact that I do all these courses, the fact that I have a doctorate and then go, well, when do we get to meet you in person? When can you be at the office? Like, oh, well, 
on the NMICB, it says can only work from the home. And I go, all of a sudden you hear the voice drop like two octaves and the whole tone change from like, oh, when can you be there? Oh, oh, mm. gosh, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah. So I persisted. I kept going for the no's to find the yes. Yeah. Finally found a yes to be hired. One as an abstract student was with the RCMP. It was on feasibility of bonding warm camera and use of force back in 2014 after Ferguson. Mm -hmm. Right. And so conducted that afterwards, still trying to find work. Mm -hmm. From there, managed to get a casual contract with Public Safety Canada in their research area. Because again, the statistics, the specialization, mm -hmm. needed to have that to get the foot in the door. No one would take me in policy or programs. I'm not specialized enough. There's enough people there that they could take somebody without a disability that knows how to do the job that I can do. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't they do that? It's less effort, it's less work. Yeah. Right. And people like having people in the office. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and that's before you get into anything else. That's before you get into my pronouns or anything else about me. The ableism was the loudest thing. It's so loud across any facet of life of trying mm -hmm. to live right mm -hmm. uh, so persisted but I noticed the difference I noticed that I was going from casual to casual and to get internalized went from a casual four to a term two so it went down two levels just to get internal and not even for indeterminate but meanwhile mm -hmm. I saw other people from the same programs as me some of them just with the masters not the doctorates walking the EC5 yeah. some EC6s mm -hmm. they maybe competed once maybe they competed three times yeah right so you notice the differences and you do have parts where you internalize it, where you yeah. think and stop and go, wait, is it something wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Right? It's not. The question is your answer. If you have to ask that yeah. when you're seeing that evidence. Oh, it's visible. Yeah. Right. It's so, terrible when it's so visible. Well, you know, and people still say, well, Holly, and they don't realize they're being minimized. They don't realize that when they talk about the not so micro microaggressions that their really good intentions to make it not as harmful, not seem as bad mm -hmm. is invalidating, right? When they say, well, it's hard for anybody to get in the government. I'm like, well, here's the evidence yeah. before of my experience. Yeah. Keep, keep talking. That's right. right. Um, so eventually what happens to persisting again, finally get into it, had to move out of the division though, to go to another division for somebody who saw my worth, regardless of any necessary accommodations, which by the way, is only to work virtually. Yeah. And even then I would, I would drown in still hiring pools where there'd be 70 people. I'd be the last of four Yeah. that they're going through just to go through, right. Mm -hmm. Just to put um, the checkbox. Yeah. And so I started to shake trees and to find the people that would be the yeses just to get the opportunity to get the acting this. The, I got into an indeterminate four. From there was an acting five. From the acting five, managed to get into a qualified pool somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Luckily, my manager wanted to keep me, managed to get me in as an indeterminate five where I was. Mm -hmm. Then a global pandemic happened. And suddenly I jumped up a level and then another level and was advising deputy minister's office and even supporting minister offices mm -hmm. and a lot of things to do with the pandemic but also a clear calls to action because of the terrible things that are happening in the world that have always been happening in the world that people just weren't paying attention to mm -hmm. 
because it's not like those stories aren't there every day yeah every day right Mm -hmm. it's just the focus on them changed when we hit so exactly so if ever I doubted it all of a sudden I've had more job offers in the last 18 months than I've had in the last 18 years incredible in November I'll have eight years in the public service I will never be someone who can retire with a full maximum pension I will not last 35 years there's no way you don't want me to be here when I'm 80 I don't want to be here when I'm 80 Um, because no one would hire me for the 10 years I tried to get into the government yeah Right until I finally get a foot in the door. So instead of 18 years, it's eight. But meanwhile, all of a sudden in a global virtual world, mm-hmm. thanks to, and I hate to say thanks to, but the odd silver lining of a global pandemic, but the fact that it took a global pandemic to even out my job opportunities. And I recognize this is only in the now. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. We're returning to the office, external offices, mm-hmm. and those attitude barriers are going to start to creep up again i hope not eh? yeah i hope so that I people hope get either. to decide like on a team by team basis whether or not they want to come back yeah it's and clear like even just from your story how how much uh the like this opportunity affords so many other people well even to go back to the office like say i go to the office because i i have traveled there like a few times a year right mm-hmm. to do things very carefully mindfully but i've done it yeah as somebody who's not cisgender. Um, luckily, public safety had one gender neutral washroom. I'd have to go all the way down, cross the street, go to a different building and up to the 13th floor, I think it's on to use mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. but we have one. Mm-hmm. But it always makes me think of that scene from Hidden Figures, mm. you know? It does, yeah. And people go, oh, well, you can use the other one. I'm like, yeah, and then what will happen? Yeah. Right. What remarks will I experience when I go there? Exactly. Right. So those are the, that's, that's how I got to where I am. There's a few other things like I, thanks to a virtual world, I was part of the United Nations Canadian delegation. Mm-hmm. Right. Which was amazing. The 3 a.m. Yeah. wake up times were not for, for Geneva time, but the experience was amazing. And that wouldn't have happened otherwise. If yeah. it weren't for a virtual world and having supportive managers who supported that and involvement in that, right? That's so key. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's it's just interesting to hear about your journey before the public service and and as you as you got into it. And you know, it's it's disheartening to hear about the the treatment that you experienced. I mean, uh, when you mentioned, you know, the that you had to persist and you had to, you know, push forward. Oftentimes, the language of of persisting and resistance um, it, it it shouldn't be there, right? It it should be an invitational kind of thing as opposed to constant battle. Thinking about we're in the public service now. You know, you've been in been in it for about eight years, as you mentioned. Wondering if um, there were any maybe like three or four tangible things that leaders co-workers, colleagues, more accessible, more invitational. And of course, um, this idea of like a respectful workplace of, um, of championing, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Sure. I think it's, it's so much more important than like people talk about championing as if there's somebody who's on, who are bystanders. It's one of the things I don't like about the term ally. I don't like the noun of it. I don't like the self-adhesive title of it. 
Um, I don't like that it seems to be something that's earned. It's not, I think it's what you just, when you mentioned agency, I think it's recognizing that we're all agents in the systemically flawed system. Mm. And as agents, we all, all of us, regardless of our backgrounds, have some, some things that we do that maintain that very same flawed system. At the same time as people who are who have agency, we also have choices to change that so that we can do things to actively try to dismantle it. And the most important thing is recognizing our agency, recognizing we don't know all the things, that we will not know all of our biases, no matter how much training we take. Because if we did, then I would never be misgendered after I give my pronouns he, him. And it shouldn't matter what my name is or how I dress. Okay, but people don't recognize that same thing as the same systemic socially constructed teachings that lead to things like racism. Mm -hmm. So when people think, oh, I'm very aware, you know, of different racist stuff, that's like saying, oh, well, I'm aware that what gender identity and gender expression are. Yeah. But I'll still get misgendered. So as a person still isn't getting racialized and still isn't dealing with those biases, of course they are. Mm -hmm. Of course we are, right? So ableism, same thing, right? Person just has to honestly ask themselves, would you date somebody with a disability? And really think about why you hesitate, where that hesitation comes from. And you'll think, oh, but it's totally natural. It's organic. It's for these reasons, A, Y, Z. Well, you were taught those reasons. Mm -hmm. Just as you were taught how you see somebody depending on the color of their skin, the religion they follow. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's one of the most important things I think they can do is recognizing the attitudinal barriers they themselves hold mm -hmm. and actively working to do something about it, to not act in accordance with them. Mm -hmm. I think outside of the boxes that they keep trying to stuff us all into. Yeah. Constantly self-challenging, right? Yeah. And it's exhausting. The brain isn't great for that. The brain doesn't like it. The brain's like, no, I don't want to effort anymore. Oh, can we just, can we just watch the Netflix show? Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. But it takes that actively dismantling. It's, it's basically, we all have to become semi self-therapists in a way, because we also have to support ourselves. We have to allow ourselves to be human, meaning we have to allow ourselves to be imperfect. We have mm -hmm. to allow ourselves to be flawed. The other thing is to take risks. Mm -hmm. You want to create safer spaces, it means you have to be brave. It means you have to be ready to fail forward mm -hmm. and make those mistakes to learn. I make mistakes every day, every day in how I engage with people and what I say or what I do or what I think. Mm -hmm. The difference is I own it. Yeah. And I work to change it. I work to learn from it. A failure is never truly a failure if we learn the lesson. Yeah. That comes with it right? Mm -hmm. Agreed. I find that that's a, I wouldn't say problem in government. I gotta put that. Um, it's a big thing in government is this fear of failure. Like we are not as agile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all about management. We have to look good. That's right. We always have to look good, feel like we yeah. know what we're doing. Obviously, it's no small feat to be in the public service because it's um, taxpayer money. It affects so many people. And at the same time, if we don't, if we don't accept an agility to our methods, we also risk being behind the curve, right? And, and also affecting citizens in a, 
in a bad way, safe status quo is worse than, than something new. And as you said, with the virtual world, right? If we, I know there were calls, like definitely there were public service servants before COVID to say like, we should try remote working, we should try something hybrid. Like there was always that push, but it just never, the spark was never there to kind of take over the public service, even on a team or anything like that. You had to be an innovative team to be considering hybrid work or remote work. Um, but had we tried it earlier, we might be in a better position today or even during the pandemic. Well, wild, right? The thing that was considered a deficit all this time, mm-hmm. we working from home, all of a sudden a global pandemic hits and suddenly it was an asset. So yeah. I was providing advice to the entire department about how to adjust to virtual working. Exactly. Full time. I know. Yeah, wow. Thank you, Holly, for, um, for sharing some of those points. And you mentioned, and you also mentioned to be brave. Um, there are moments where, you know, we should be ready to, to fail and, and then to pick up and to learn. Wondering, you know, now that we're in uh, this sort of emergence of the pandemic, if I can put it that way, if in the time that you have worked on equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives, what you see as things that have been surprising or potentially challenging, or quite frankly, quite interesting or inspiring? The first thing that surprised me in doing this work was the sheer amount of governance that you have to cover in terms of what's happening, where it's happening, who's doing what, where. Wow, you need like a small little army of people who can pick up and go and have that initiative and have a certain wherewithal, have a certain amount of tact and sensitivity and mindfulness in how they approach things. So that's really important in this area in particular, right? Because you never know when engaging with somebody else what their lived and learned experience may be, right? And what words will set them off versus what words will set me off, right? Right. Um, it needs a lot more resources dedicated than what it has. Um, it's an astounding amount because it. I think one of the things that surprised me in a sense is just how layered it is to a point where none of us can fully, fully, fully appreciate because there's always be some other thing uncovered that'll be, oh, wait, that too. That's, that's a little bit of racialization over there in that process. Did you notice that? And that outcome over there, right? There's a bit of ableism over here. There's that intersectionality of the both that if you're somebody racialized and have a disability, then if you're somebody who's queer and black, right? Then this over here. So there's so many things within and a lot of, I think one of the things that surprises me is how much people resist acknowledging that resist sort of seeing it, resist, you know, checking that out sort of deal. Like people go, well, it's like this, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, 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 it's like this. It is like this. It is something that perpetuates racialized. It is something that has this very unintended racialized outcome. It is something that has this unintended ableistic, sexist, Christian-centric, cisgender-centric, heterocentric outcome that impacts a lot of us who are not those things. I recognize 100% it's not intended. It's not about the intention, it's about the impact, right? And it's Mm -hmm. so woven, because again, 
would not be misgendered otherwise as soon as I give my pronouns. Yeah. And if it's like that for that one thing, that means it's like that for all of the things. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm not the exception. I'm part of the pattern in terms of what I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Oh, it does. Yes. Right? Because people treat things as if they're in isolation, they're in little buckets and silos. That's not the reality that we're dealing with. The reality is it's all very much ingrained and connected and, and like worked into such a depth that we need to excavate. You know, we need to be willing to dig. And the, it's incredibly effortful, absolutely 100%. And it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And the more you do it, the more you realize the different ways it impacts you personally. Right. And that's hard to deal with too. There's supports. I really think that people who work in the area of equity, diversity, inclusion, anti racism really need sort of mental health supports mm -hmm. that we don't necessarily need in other pockets. Right. Things that healing. The healing centered trauma informed. I say healing centered because trauma informed in and of itself focuses on the impact and the deficits, right? Healing centered focuses, it acknowledges the impact and focuses on our strengths and what we can do. It's empowering versus making us anchored in our pain solely, right? So there's things like that and how to get that and how to get that kind of training where it's not as a therapist, but doing peer to peer support, doing self support for that type of work, right? There's a lot of identity stuff, for example. This is me sort of putting on the psychology hat, so just <laughs> fair warning. Um, so there's certain things you can do. There's narrative therapy, for example. There's, there's certain things as people who are gender diverse where there are options for those of us who can access them. I've never been able to, uh, to date, uh, where you do things that help you in your identity and affirming, affirming your identity. I have certain members of, of my family, as well as colleagues who go to specifically black therapists who specialize in the affirmation and validation of black identity. Because what we don't recognize, and this is what happens when we start to do the digging, is how much we have sacrificed of ourselves, our authentic self, to fit in, to be a part of the system. Remember way, way back in the beginning of the conversation, I mentioned about the system, how we all perpetuated in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We do it by our sacrificing ourselves in the way we talk, the way we dress, how we engage, what we say, how we say it, what we buy, what we listen to, what movies we go see, right? What movies are available to go see mm -hmm. for that matter, right? Like we don't recognize that even the cereal on our friggin' shelves has to do with systemic harms about what's not there. Right? There is no toy on any toy shelf that's somebody that represents me. I know of no gender diverse action figure that also happens to have a disability that also happens to be all the mixed, all the things that I happen to be, mm -hmm. right? And if so, I bet it doesn't sell well. Yeah. There's a heartbreaking video on YouTube. It's called What a Girl Wants. Mm -hmm. It was a social experiment where young girls were brought in to say, which doll do you want to play with? One was white. The other doll was a doll of somebody who was racialized. Mm -hmm. Every child picked the white doll. Yeah. And when asked the answers they would give, break my heart to this day. I was weeping by the end of watching that video because it's true. Mm -hmm. What do I look at? What do I think is attractive Yeah. versus not? Myself think is attractive was something taught to me. Will I look at the person with the brace canes and think, damn, they're sexy? Mm -hmm. 
right? And why why don't I? Mm-hmm. Right? Because again, sexy is all you know, but yeah. taught not to be seen that way, taught not to be perceived that way, just the same way that society teaches ourselves and communities at large to not see me as somebody viable as mm-hmm. an employee. The reasons why we experience some things where people say, I see white person after white person put up in the same spot while I'm kept still. Yeah. And yet you'll hear the invalidations, right? Mm-hmm. And stuff. And it's and it's because of what we're taught to see is viable. Who we see is promotable. Right. And that's heartbreaking to realize. But when we start to even dig, we start to realize in ourselves how much we see that in ourselves and those around us as well. Mm-hmm. How much harder are we on our fellow people who are racialized in terms of criticizing their jobs? Mm-hmm. Internally, maybe, maybe not out loud, but maybe internally, right? Versus somebody else yeah. who doesn't look like them, mm-hmm. right? And that's a hard thing to own because then we have to start thinking, what do we stop ourselves from doing? Yeah. What are we saying no to ourselves before we ever, ever put ourselves out to get the no from other people? Mm-hmm. We say no to ourselves to not even make the effort and try because it hurts too much because it's too hard because we know they're going to say no. But there's that law of probabilities, right? And it's hard. We have to take so many more risks and push so much harder all the time, right? And I think that the cost of that is something that astounds and and gives me heartbreak every day, like every day of my existence, because I see it myself and I see even people around me. Right. And what that makes them stop. There's so many times when I've like coached and mentored different people to say, never tell yourself no, never tell yourself no. Yeah. There's been times I've told myself no. That's why I know you got to fight for it. Mm-hmm. You've got to fight yourself to get it mm-hmm. before you even fight them. Yeah. Right. And so it's about what do we do to affirm ourselves? And I think those are some of the things, uh, some of the things that inspire me, the fact that we're here fact that we're doing this fact that you're doing this podcast uh looking at people like you like ali like you know you sean and nia ali uh people like trudy michelle you know richard farah of course like so fantastic like all these incredible people but there's all, all sorts of people across that you might not see because again they're not they're not in leadership roles or maybe not yet yeah right because i always hold hope the people like the fatuma men's of the world right Who's, who I got to work with, the people like Akeem McGinley, the people like Annie Ng and Valerie Jean-Gilles who helped me in doing the trust circles over at Public Safety, mm-hmm. right? Taking time out of their, their very substantive demanding jobs. These aren't people who are EXs at this point in time. I don't know if they even want to be executives at all, mm-hmm. right? But these are people who are like in medium to lower, lower tier type of roles who are giving their all. That's the thing that, you know, to see the people who are still fighting and still giving their all and hopefully not to the expense of their well-being. Yeah. That's the other thing, right? There's the pros and cons to it, right? Is that, gosh, so much of this off-the-side of death and again, the cost, right? Mm-hmm. The PTSE, the persistent traumatic stress and stressful environment mm-hmm. cost that we have to do all the systemic, all the things. Yeah. I think that's something we, we really don't understand or recognize the full extent of either the reason why we're so much more tired at the end of the day Mm. yeah right how we end up questioning ourselves worse when we're really tired Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right those cognitive costs yeah we don't always take those into account yeah i i need us to find ways to better look at that in ways that we can better support 
ourselves and each other. Mm -hmm. And so that that's not as much the case, like let's start to find ways to reduce that. And that's some about the work that we're doing, right? Raising the awareness, having the discussions, because that's always the first part is recognizing and understanding to the best of our ability, what it is that's going on so that we can then explore what can we do about it? Yeah. Are you doing okay, Mia? Cause. Oh, I'm good. Yeah. Sensing you're, good. you're having some strong feels right now. Um, I just, I really responded to you know your hope because you have met so many people who have supported you on this journey and it's been a very long very difficult journey Um, and like Sean said disheartening to hear the first parts of it of course like the fact that you had to go 18 years for a bachelor's degree and then with a bit of accommodation you managed to finish like you did your master's in two years right and all it takes is some some accommodation I hope that it continues and it's a and it's a more positive trend especially as we're embracing the virtual world so what inspires me is you being here you know Mm. the the fact that you fought so hard on your journey and i'm sure that that fight made waves for other people like other people to get accommodations in universities and hopefully it was easier for them certainly inspired by you um holly and you know taking so many notes as we're as we're talking and i i'm I was very pulled into um, the statement that you mentioned earlier, which was, we tend to sometimes resist seeing the, re- the reality of others. It's interesting, and, and I, I resonate with that. Um, we resist seeing the reality of others. And at the same time, as we resist seeing the realities, the micro-realities of others, we have the other side, which is the microaggressions. That there seems to be, we resist learning about the micro realities of people but at the same time in some areas some people are okay or maybe even um uh, uh you know engage in other kinds of behaviors that are more microaggressive. so it seems like it's partly a heart issue too right because it's like on the one hand we're like we um as you mentioned earlier excavation you know takes ec- effort and maybe the resistance is, is that idea of not wanting to put in the kindness or the compassion because it takes that effort. But then on the flip side, is it better to then be, a, you know, to display microaggressive behavior? Because that seems to me like that takes effort too. And so I, I sort of bring this in to say, to really pull back on this heart kind of thing, where it's almost like our we're fine-tuning, if I can put it sort of metaphorically, we're kind of fine-tuning the, the strings of our heart as we're moving through and hopefully with, you know, the EDI, um, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion, and Accessibility Initiative, um, that there are heart strings that are being adjusted as we, as we do this work. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's, there's some different thoughts that come to mind. Uh, one, I think one of the reasons why we resist is we don't want it to be as awful as it is, right? The other reason why we resist, and we mentioned this before, is we don't want to be a bad person. None of us want to be bad people, right? And we think if we do this thing, then obviously we're a bad person. That's if you're doing it intentionally, I would say you're making some very harmful bad choices. And, you know, let's get somebody who's a professional to speak to you about that or a police officer, depending on the situation. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let's be honest. Um, but that's like labor relations stuff. When it's unintentional, it still can fall under the LR umbrella for sure. But 
I think it's, it's I, I'd actually argue that that doesn't take the microaggressions you're talking about, which aren't so micro, right? When you live it, when that's all you're experiencing day in and day out, a lot of the time, right? That makes up so much of your life and makes so much of the internalized messaging about why we're not enough, right? That's, I think, one of the most often thing I hear from anybody in any marginalized group is how I am not, not seen worthy enough. All of a sudden you get a promotion and it's like, oh, wait, is that okay? Mm. Yes, it's okay. If being offered like two separate jobs and one's a higher level than the other, well, which should I take? Take the higher one if you want it. Why would you not take the promotion promotion? <laughs> right. But we will okay. stop and we'll question it. We'll stop and we'll question ourselves and go, oh, but am I ready for that? Mm -hmm. Am I good enough for that? Is, would I be okay in doing a good job? Yeah. Well, what about what would you get out of that? You get a higher salary first off. Let's just go right there. Yeah. Right there. You get more money. Everybody needs more money. Mm -hmm. Right. We live in a capitalist society. Let's own that. But secondly, about this experience and stuff, everybody learns as they go. Why can't you? Right. Again, we yeah. tell ourselves, no, we hesitate because we internalize that same messaging. Right. And I think like those those aggressions don't take effort because it's so embedded in our cognitive behavioral systems because it's been taught since we were like, yay, hi. We're taught right away all of those things. That's why you had four-year-old girls not choosing the doll that actually corresponded with their skin color and using words like bad and dirty at four years old, mm -hmm. you know, right? So imagine what it must be like at the ages of 20-something, 30-something, 40-something, 50-something, how much we've internalized over those decades, right? Mm -hmm. I think it takes very little effort for us to take that easy route because the kind of brain just goes there. The synaptic firing is there. It's it's in, out of a field that your brain is. That is a place where there is no grass. It is easy going, right? It takes effort to go the other way. It takes effort to fight that because then you're pushing down the grass, figuratively speaking. You know, and a lot of people think of gentleness and kindness like it's a weakness. I hear that all the time. Well, you know. Especially when we talk about masculinity, which would be a whole other conversation about toxic masculinity and everything mm -hmm. else. But mm -hmm. when people talk about masculinity, well, why is somebody who's masculine, why can I not be kind and gentle? Why can yeah. I not be soft-spoken? What? Mm -hmm. Who made those rules? Mm -hmm. And also, I think it takes a lot more effort. I think it takes strength to be kind. It doesn't take any effort to be mean and lash out at people with because that doesn't take mindfulness. That just takes somebody basically behaviorally, you know, spewing whatever they want to spew. Mm -hmm. just because they can yeah right but to be intentionally kind to be intentionally gentle mm -hmm. that takes strength that can even take courage depending on the situation how many times have any of us had to be the most patient understanding even toned person in a room when we're the person the most impacted mm -hmm. and we choose to try to be kind as long as that kindness is not an invalidation to ourselves okay mm -hmm. But as long as it's not an erasure to ourselves, okay. Yeah. But I think kindness is a strength. It takes strength to do it, right? Mindfulness is what's needed. And that takes that takes intention and, again, takes strength and also takes courage because you got to be willing to, okay, you say something somebody else is not going to agree with. Yeah. Occasionally not being seen as perfect because none of us are. Mm -hmm. You know, going impression management, well, the best thing I can impress upon other people is I'm somebody who's willing to put myself out there to do the right thing. And if I make a mistake, I'm somebody who's willing to take responsibility and ownership of it and pivot and be flexible and adapt as needed to do better, to okay. move forward and to help us all rise and not leave other people behind, right? Because okay. that's the other manifestation of aggression is how we compete against each other. 
Mm -hmm. right? The impression Olympics <laughs> because we're so anchored in our pain. It's like, but wait, our group, our group has the most, our group suffers more than your group. Yeah. You know, and, and, and all that, that is a systemic harm. I see that as one of the systemic things that we're taught to do is the fight for the piece of pie. Forget about the pie. That's a systemic ideology that doesn't serve us well. We do have finite resources, mm -hmm. but universal rights are not, mm -hmm. right? Universal rights are exactly that, they're universal. The only limits are those is where harm begins. Yeah. My freedom of expression ends where I'm committing harm through mm -hmm. hate speech, for example, is the most obvious choice through bullying, Yeah. right? Would be some very easy things to describe but when it comes to like the things that we do and how we do them my goodness mm -hmm. right it just takes a little bit of thinking to own and be willing to recognize that these things are universal and they're needed these mm -hmm. gaps exist young has the five faces of oppression mm -hmm. it's a really interesting read because it was trying to get away from those oppression limits trying to get away from that divisive thinking which mm -hmm. is something i think is systemically taught mm -hmm. because if we're busy fighting and competing against each other then the people who don't have to fight or compete are just sitting back going, well, you know, well, look at the way those people are. Yeah. You know, we try to give them help, but, you know, they can't even help themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. no, I'm big about all of us because, again, intersectionality for one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And the fact that recognizing that we're not siloed categories, that, again, that siloed thinking systemic. Yeah. Right. There are black people who are women. There are black people who are queer. There are black people who are, you know, people with disabilities. Same thing with Asian, same yeah. thing with like, as you go like all down, same thing with people who are indigenous, right? And mm -hmm. yet we treat ourselves like in siloed little things. Yeah. But then what about those of us who are the many things? Mm -hmm. Who are we leaving behind? I ask two questions every time in anything I do, who will it help? Who will it hurt? Mm -hmm. When I'm asked to review something, I'm asked, well, who is it helping? Who might it be hurting? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What are we missing? And there's always something. I don't have all the answers ever. Nobody does. But it's about asking the questions and being willing to really think about those answers to mm -hmm. try to get us closer. If I had the answer to how to erase racism, ableism, all the isms that harm us, gosh, I'd love, I'd love, I'd love to put the Nobel Peace Prize on my CV. That would be fantastic. That would be amazing. Um, but that's the thing about this work is we have to kind of embrace the fact that it's something we will never truly succeed at in the sense that we will never truly be able to get rid of all the racism, all the sexism, all the ableism, all the ageism, mm -hmm. all the hetero cisgender centric things that hurt us will not end and more. Yeah. Right. But can we do things to make it better? So it's less. Mm -hmm. harmful less hurtful because that's the goal because every time it's less if everything we do it's a little bit less a little bit less a little bit less then eventually eventually maybe maybe there will be a time maybe not not in my lifetime i imagine but in the lifetime of others to come mm -hmm. or maybe it will actually be somehow a thing of the past to an extent where it's so negligible that it's actually negligible yeah and as you said one day holly will just be holly Right. Exactly. Right. Wouldn't you love to just be Nia? Wouldn't you love to just be Sean? Wouldn't it be amazing to walk in a room and, and never feel like you're quote unquote a minority? Yeah. That you're the odd person who sticks out mm -hmm. and be very aware of that difference. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One day. One day. Yeah, so I just wanted to know what book um, you're reading right now, if you're reading one, and if there's a quote that has sort of like stuck out to you in the last, I don't know, three to four weeks that's uplifting and encouraging. And we're really, Neha and I, and, and I can speak for Neha too, I think we're, we're very grateful for the encouragement that you've really infused in this conversation. And so I um, wanted to highlight that too. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Uh, there's two books that I'm reading actually right now, sort of on and off simultaneously. One is Surviving the White Gaze. Okay. And if you give me a minute, I'll find the author for it because I'm terrible at remembering names. But it's literally out on the coffee table in the other room by Rebecca Carroll. Aha, Rebecca. And it's a memoir. It's so far very powerful. So I've been only able to read it in like stops and starts. Mm-hmm. As she recounts her, her painful struggle to overcome a completely white childhood in order to forge her identity as a black woman in the mm-hmm. US. Right, and what, and what that's like. Um, the other one is one by a transgender writer. I just want to make sure I get his name correct. So the other book I'm reading is Man Alive, A True Story of Violence, Forgiveness, and Becoming a Man. It's by Thomas Page McBee. Okay. He was the first transgender man to ever box at Madison Square Garden. So he talks that. about the whole deconstruction of masculinity, but also, and that's the thing, the things we're taught about what we think something is versus what it actually is if we allow it to be, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the thing also, I think we don't recognize how much that constrains all of us. Like when I talk to uh, cisgender men, you know, sometimes, and even cisgender women, and talk about the same things that, that help to make you not see me mm-hmm. as male, are the mm-hmm. same things that constrict you mm-hmm. from being able to fully actualize what you are as a man or what you are as a woman. Yeah. Are the same things that cause you that restricting me restrict you as well in different ways that you're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. Did you have a quote if you wanted to share about uh, a quote um, that may uh, you may have been thinking about or something that um, has touched you? I was just I was looking at the inside of my coat because I actually put quotes on the inside of my I get them engraved on the inside of my jacket lining. Cool. <laughs> That's so, so cool. So I have different ones. Uh, the one I have is uh, as constant and true. So as constant and true as the Northern star. Wow. Um, I believe that's so important to, you know, try to keep the course mm-hmm. no matter what. Light the way by being who you are. Those are both fantastic. Thanks so much, Holly, for sharing your words of wisdom and your long breadth of experience. We're definitely going to take it all to heart and hopefully keep pushing it forward. Okay, thank you. If you would like us to discuss any topics on the podcast, or if you have any questions, please DM us on our social channels or email us at aran.publicservants at gmail.com. This episode was hosted by Sean Karamani and Neha Shazad and produced by Marcella Popovich. Thanks so much and see you next time.